I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to uh, Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 28 to 39. You may follow along as I read the text. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, that is, that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and there, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw, saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even the things which were made for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a, tab, a barnacle against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave on you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Here ends the text. Let us pray. Lord, we just ask that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart this morning may truly be acceptable to you as we call upon you, our Lord and our Redeemer. Bless the hearing of your word for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I enjoy watching movie bloopers. Uh, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's something funny about watching other people mess up, right? <laughs> Many times these bloopers actually get past the final cut and appear on the screen. For example, in a movie starring Jack Nicholson, Jack walks by an ATM machine. We say, well, what's <laughs> unusual about that? Well, the fact is that that movie was cast in 1948, before ATMs were even thought of. We're in another movie uh, entitled The Days of Thunder, starring Tom Cruise. Tom suffers a, a, a racing injury with a very strange 
phenomena. When he goes to the hospital, he has a red ring around his right eye. When he's laying in the bed, he has a ring around his left eye. And the next time you see him, he has a ring again on the right eye. So where is his injury? In another movie, some characters, they, they take a ferry from Detroit, Michigan to Racine, Wisconsin. What's wrong with that? Well, no such ferry exists. And if it did, you'd have to be a Magellan to navigate the Detroit River up to Lake Huron and over to Lake Michigan and down to Racine. Well, I think some of the people in that first Palm Sunday crowd thought that they were witnessing a blooper because this wasn't exactly how they thought it was going to take place. In their minds, the script was not followed the way they thought it should have been. But as we will see, Jesus follows this script to a T. Before getting to Jerusalem, Jesus is down in the city of Jericho. And while in Jericho, he meets a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus, who was going through uh, four stages of uh, his spiritual journey. First, uh, he was blind, and he knew that he was blind physically and spiritually. Secondly, his belief. He knew who Jesus Christ was. Thirdly, his boldness. He didn't hesitate putting into words his desire to be healed. And finally, his blessing. He was blessed to be a blessing. And while in Jericho, Jesus also met a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Have you ever heard of him? Zacchaeus, that wee little man? Well, he also was going through four similar and yet different stages in his faith development. First, he was curious. He wanted to know who is this Jesus. And so he climbs up into the sycamore tree to get a good view. Secondly, he considered investigating all of the claims that Jesus made about himself. And that led to his conversion. This searching Savior saved him and forgave all his sin. And finally, Zacchaeus was changed. Zach's life was radically redirected because of his conversion. And so Jesus spent time in doing these miracles as he's on his way up to Jerusalem. And Luke makes it very clear that there was nothing that was going to get in the way of Jesus accomplishing the purpose for which he came. Even though he stopped to, to minister to these various people, he never lost sight of his overall goal. But in order for us to understand what's about to take place in our text this morning, I think it's important that we grasp three background details. First, everybody in Israel knew that the Messiah was going to be crowned as king in the city of Jerusalem. The Old Testament makes it very clear that the coming king would do his main work in the city of David. Ever since the Garden of Eden, all heaven and earth 
has been waiting for that time when Jesus would make his final entry into Jerusalem for the last time. The scarlet thread of redemption is weaving its way throughout the entire scripture, and it'll come to a culmination this Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Secondly, the Passover feast was just about to begin. The celebration would bring many spiritual pilgrims to the city and would fuel the fires of messianic and spiritual expectations. Historians tell us that it was not unusual for there to be two to three million people in Jerusalem for Palm Sunday, uh, Passover observance. On the Passover, the Paschal Lamb is slain just as it was at the beginning of the Exodus. This yearly reminder helped them to, uh, to serve the Israelites to never forget that the blood of the, of the Lamb was the, what was responsible for their deliverance. And now Jesus, the Paschal Lamb, is about to be slain once and for all time for our forgiveness. Thirdly, Jesus had recently performed a number of miracles that attracted the crowds and fueled their messianic enthusiasm coming into Palm Sunday. In particular, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we are told in John chapter 11, verses 45 and 6, that many Jews put their faith in Christ. Others, however, went away, and they went and told the Pharisees what had happened. And the growing popularity of Jesus alarmed these religious leaders, and so they met together after Lazarus was raised from the dead. And from that day on, the Pharisees determined to kill him, and they were even planning to kill Lazarus. Now, it's difficult for, for us who are removed from this event 2,000 years to really grasp what was the mood of that Palm Sunday. The people were looking for a Messiah, and Jesus was likely the candidate, but the moment was right as he headed to the capital city. The people were pumped They're excited. They couldn't wait for the king to come and free them from the reign of Rome. In contrast, however, the religious leaders were intent on putting Jesus to death, and they were just waiting for the right opportunity. So as we come to the text now, I see four things and ways in which we can welcome the king this morning. First of all, welcome him with obedience. I want you to notice in verse 28 of this text that the text says he was going on ahead to Jerusalem. I picture Jesus walking ahead of the disciples and uh, as though he couldn't wait to finally complete his job. The disciples may have been rather reluctant maybe even dragging their sandals because they knew very well that their master was already under the sentence of death by the Jewish leaders. In verse 29, 
the text tells us that Jesus and his disciples, they arrived at the little town of Bethany. Bethany is on the east side of the Mount of Olives, about two miles. And uh, at the hill called Mount of Olives, he um, told them that they should go and uh, get, a, uh, get a donkey. And the disciples went ahead and they found just as exactly as Jesus had told them. There would be a, a donkey that would have a colt tied with it. Bring it. And if anybody has any word about it, just say, the Lord needs it. And so they did. In verses 30 and 31, the two disciples uh, go into the village. And, uh, and these words tell us what happened. Those who uh, were sent went away and found it just as they had told him. And as they were untying the colt, the owners did say, why do you untie it? And they said, the Lord has need. So Jesus spells out very, very specifically. Somehow he knew there would be a colt tied. Matthew tells us that the colt had this donkey. And that this was the mother of the foal. And they were to bring both of them. Now, why both? Maybe it was because that little donkey had never had anybody riding it. And so for the first time, it might get a little wild. But if the parent is there, it's a little bit easier. Well, these animals were quite expensive. And we see in verse 32, there were at least two people who had gone in together to buy these donkeys. And in our culture today, it would be like somebody coming up to a, a bright red convertible Porsche and open the door and start the motor and drive off. And as the owner comes running out, he says, hey, where are you going? You say, well, the Lord's needed. Some cultural background helps at this point. You know, according to a custom called Angaria, a dignitary could procure a, a use of property for personal reasons. I suppose we would call it today uh, eminent domain. It would be like the President of the United States coming to you and saying, I have need of your car. Another important point to make is this. When the disciples were sent to get the colt, Jesus was putting into place yet one other prophecy that we read in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, keep in mind that many of the followers of Jesus were hoping that the Messiah would come in with power and overthrow the tyranny of Rome. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead would certainly be able to do that too, wouldn't he? So as they bow down to Rome, they long for a warrior king who would come on a great white horse. 
like King David did a thousand years earlier when he wiped out the Philistines. You can imagine the confusion in their minds when the people saw their Messiah riding on a baby donkey. Jesus was about to enter the city of David not as a warrior who would physically conquer Rome, but as a prophetic prince of peace who would seek to conquer the spiritual hearts of the people. And many of the crowd understood the message behind that symbolism. While the disciples obeyed without asking any questions, I wonder what was really going on in their minds. They could have been amazed, once again, that everything was just as Jesus said it would be. Or they could have been wondering what went wrong in the script. You may recall that shortly before this, the disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They were hoping that Jesus was setting up his cabinet at this time and that the disciples would have a place beside him. But instead of ruling, the disciples find themselves running errands, saddling donkeys, not marching in places of honor. But the point is, they obeyed. Friend, are you as quick to obey as the disciples were, even when you may not understand everything clearly? When you discover clear commands in the Scripture, do you follow them? Or do you falter? Do you need to own up to any deliberate deeds of disobedience right now? If so, do it. Determine to welcome the king with an obedient heart. John 14, 15 reminds us that if we say that we love Jesus, then we will obey what he commands. Secondly, welcome him with gifts. There are three gifts that were given that day. The first was the colt. The owners didn't question the disciples after they were told that the colt was for Jesus. Maybe they had heard of Jesus before and were happy to give their possession away. They gladly give to him what rightfully belongs to him anyway. As the creator, Jesus has every right to possess what is ultimately his. As Someone has suggested the owners may have been laughing themselves because they knew that this colt had never been ridden before and might give this rider quite a ride. But not only did Zechariah prophesy about the Messiah riding a colt, the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey brought back memories of King Solomon's procession to the Gion Spring. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38 and 39. They had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. 
Verse 35 tells us about the second gift. The disciples put their cloaks on the donkey. Verse 36 says, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. They willingly took off their outer garments and laid some of them on the colt and others placed them in front of Jesus on the road. Can you imagine what all this commotion might have done to this donkey? It had never been ridden before and now Jesus is on its back and and the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna! Palm branches, they were waving, cutting them off the trees and putting them down. That's the third gift, is the palm branches. Now Luke doesn't mention this detail, but Matthew 21 verse 8 does. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's a common way to welcome a victorious king when he returns from battle. These palm branches are also a symbol of joy and victory. When they were placed on graves as a sign of eternal life. And since they often grew out in the desert near water, palm trees were also a sign of, of life and activity. By laying palm branches on the road, the people were signifying that Jesus was the victorious king who gives eternal life to those who are out wandering in the desert of life. And that's you and me. The gifts of the colt, the cloaks, and the branches, they all point to who Jesus is. And what started out as a Jewish feast is now turning into a Messiah celebration. The colt was expensive. The cloaks were essential. The branches were an expression of joy. Friend, what can you welcome the king with today? Is he asking you to give something that's expensive? Or is he longing for you to give up something that you consider essential? Or have you been holding out on an expression of joy in your life? If you want to welcome the king, you can do so with your gifts. While there is nothing that we can do to earn our way to heaven, or nothing that we can give to impress Jesus, our giving does demonstrate our love and our devotion for him. Thirdly, Welcome him with praise. The followers of the king welcome him with obedience and with their gifts. But we see next that they welcome him also with their praise. And if they started with preparation, they now break out in celebration. Verse 37 says, As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully, with a loud voice for the miracles which they had seen. The language suggests that it was more than just the 12 disciples that were doing this. At this point, there were many followers of Christ. And as they moved down the mountain, the city of Jerusalem comes into view and causing them to get even more excited. Verse 
They break out into a spontaneous outpouring of praise. But sadly, within a matter of days, those same voices are saying, Crucify him! What a change in mood. But for now, they are shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's a quotation from Psalm 118. They were singing psalms during the worship. And Psalm 118 refers to Palm Sunday. And by singing this psalm, the followers of Christ are declaring that Jesus is the king who comes with the very authority of God. Matthew 21 tells us they included the word Hosanna. We didn't hear that in the Luke text. The word Hosanna simply means save now. It was a feeling of celebration, of exaltation, of adoration for what they were anticipating would come to pass. But as the crowd is praising God loudly, the Pharisees, they come to Jesus in verse 39 and say, Teacher, rebuke your, your disciples. They knew that the crowd was declaring Jesus as the Messiah. And so they tell Jesus to reject the claim and rebuke them. These claims are offensive to the religious leaders. I love the answer that Jesus gives in verse 40. I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. If the disciples do not speak, then creation will. And creation did speak. Because we read in Matthew 27, verse 51, that after Jesus died, the earth shook and the rocks split. Jesus is saying, if I tell my disciples to stop singing Psalm 118, then you will hear a literal rock concert. How are you doing at welcoming the king? With praise? Do you have moments in your schedule in which you stop and break out in adoration? Do you start your day or end your day with praise and worship? When you come here on Sunday mornings for personal worship experience, as you worship collectively with others, is this a culmination of what your worship has been like during the week? Or is this the only time that you enter into worship? God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth, spontaneously, loudly, regularly. Then fourthly, welcome him with faith. Jesus is longing for people to welcome him with obedience, with gifts, with praise, and finally with faith. As he makes his way down the mountain, he sees the entire city of Jerusalem in a panoramic view. And that is quite a view. And you probably have seen that view on television uh, whenever things occur in, in Israel. 
The city is stunning in its beauty, shining with white buildings and the gleaming. Today you see the gleaming of the dome of the rock or the Muslim mosque. But in the scripture's day, it was the gleaming of the temple as the sun was shining on the gold that was laid out uh, in, in, in the whole building. But Jesus sees a different view. He's coming not to be respected. He's coming to be rejected. And as we try to put ourselves back in that day, we see the disciples' preparation led to celebration. But now, sadly, the mood shifts to one of lamentation. Verse 41 tells us, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. And you know what he did over it? He wept. Why would he weep over a beautiful city like Jerusalem? We may be tempted to rejoice in Jesus' victory over the Pharisees. But he doesn't gloat. Or gloat. He cries instead. His interest is not in winning arguments. He's interested in winning hearts. And the word wept here means he burst into tears loud, deeply, sobbing. This was more than just a tear coming down his cheek. While everyone else was shouting joyfully, Jesus was crying because of the hard hearts that he was seeing. He was not weeping because he was going to suffer and die. No, he was weeping for the lost. He wants people to exhibit faith and trust in him as their Lord and Savior. He wants this so much that he breaks out into a loud wailing when people choose to go their own way. On three separate occasions, the Bible says Jesus cried. You know, the shortest verse in the Bible is John eleven thirty five. He wept when Lazarus died. And then at the sight of Jerusalem in our text, he had cried tears of sorrow. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read in Hebrews 5, 7, that he cried tears of anguish. As Jesus looks at the Jerusalem with his deep sobbing and wailing and almost choking him up, he cries out rather abruptly in verses 42 to 4, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you with hem and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus offered salvation. They rejected it. And as a result, they've lost out in real peace. My friend... <clears throat> This brings uh, Jesus no, no, no pleasure. It brings him pain. 
and he's deeply moved, and he's choked up when he thinks about someone not responding to him in faith. Listen to what Ezekiel 38, 11 says. As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Which one will spur you on to welcome the king? Which gift? Obedience? Gifts? Praise? Or faith? I'm told that there's a Rembrandt painting of the face of Christ that is very captivating. If you cover one eye, then the other eye shows Jesus with a sparkle of joy and hope. But if you cover the other eye, it looks like he's about to cry. And if you try to look at both eyes at the same time, you will see both emotions, joy and crying. Friends, that's the face that we see of Jesus on Palm Sunday. Hope of joy, but also of crying. Do you know what the biggest blooper in all time is? The biggest blooper is when individuals choose to decide not to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So I ask you, don't put it off any longer. Heavenly Father, we just pray that your Spirit may invite us now to open our heart to you, that we may give our life to you in obedience, in joy, in praise, in our gifts, and in our faith. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.